Good Wednesday morning. My name is Craig. I'm your host. And Dr. John is going to be speaking about hope. He was recently asked to speak about hope at his church, and he preached on that. And that sermon, we're going to try to find it and link it in the description down below and or post it. So keep an eye out for that. Oh, good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or whatever time it is where you are. I do appreciate your comments that come back to me in all sorts of ways. I want to talk about hope today. Hope is one of the theological virtues. This means that a continual looking forward to the eternal world is a form of, it's not a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most about the next. There, of course, is C.S. Lewis from chapter 10 of Mere Christianity. The reason it's on my mind at the moment is I had a lovely uh, experience this Sunday. I was asked to preach at my church. The pastor had decided he wanted to get some members of the congregation, four of us, up during the period of Advent to preach instead of him. And he gave us the theological virtues to deal with. And I got the first one, hope. I've never talked about hope very much, and it was good for me to have to think about it. And that lovely quotation from Lewis, of course, set off all sorts of triggers. Uh, Hopefully it will in some of you, and those that it doesn't, maybe it will in the future. What came into mind for me immediately was Alistair McIntyre, After Virtue, uh, a book to which I refer frequently, uh, Many philosophers uh, call it the greatest philosophical text of the 20th century. Uh, certainly, it's the, the most powerful philosoph- uh, philosophical text I've ever read, and it's had an immense impact on the way I think about everything. And its opening on the topic of the loss of virtue, including the theological virtues, being the problem that we face today, Uh, We go to church and we don't have any depth. And McIntyre understood that. He started his life as a Marxist uh, at Oxford, very smart, and ends up at Notre Dame as a Thomist, uh, a follower of uh, Thomas Aquinas in terms of uh, intellectual roots. But the book After Virtue opens brilliantly. Uh, It's not an easy book to read, uh, for one thing, I wish he'd use more commas. He writes long sentences with insufficient commas, but uh, who who am I to criticize Alistair McIntyre? He begins with a parable. He says, I I want you to imagine a know-nothing government taking charge. And they decide, they're very green, you see, that although it's long before green time, I mean, he was writing this in around 19, late 70s, before the 80s. They think that all the problems in the world are due to science and scientists. So if they blow up the laboratories, lynch the scientists and burn the libraries, we'll get a a wonderful new green world where everything is natural and perfect. Of course, it doesn't work. It's a disaster. And so they have to try and reinvent science. But they've destroyed all the people who know what it actually is. And uh, it doesn't work because they have no overarching sense of what science is, so they're in trouble. Then he says, what I'm asking you to understand at this point 
is that that is where we are now, 1980, but not in relation to science, but in relation to morality. Now, of course, in 20, the 2020s, uh, we are actually uh, today seeing people trying to get rid of science from medicine, for example. There's actually a serious study group in the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons and others in in uh, Canada who've got a little woke group read by, led by a crazy woman who wants to make social justice the central purpose of medicine. Do you want to go to your doctor and have him sort of give you a checkpoint list to see whether you're worthy of treatment or whether you're in a privileged group that should go outside to the end of the queue and if I get there at the end of the day, I'll see you. That's what they want. And the problem is they're serious. That's a world that's in deep trouble. But what uh, McIntyre points out is when you lose the virtues, uh, nature bores a vacuum, all sorts of rubbish rushes in, which is what we're dealing with. And now, after all that period of time, roughly 50 years, or getting on that way, it, it's not just virtue that's going, it's the whole culture. The video that we were talking about just before we started recording with Eric Beinstein, uh, he's discussing the same problem, that all throughout academe, people who are actually capable of thinking properly about it are being shut down, cancelled, pushed out, and replaced by people who take the central narrative as the only thing that matters the DEI crowd. And in the university, they've brainwashed an awful lot of people who don't see that it's utterly illogical, incomprehensible, and incapable of supporting the society they actually want. And my wife was laughing last night. She said, you should see the number of private aircraft that were at the World Climate Conference. She said, it's hilarious. The airport was packed with private jets of these people pretending to be on the side of the angels and making a carbon footprint that's enough for the, you know, whole nations won't make as many as those people made over the, over the conference time. This is the crazy world we're in. We've lost our way. We, we do not know what good and evil are, or we can't recognize them in the way we used to. So it's difficult to hope under such circumstances until you step back a little bit. And as a Christian, that's what we have to, that's what we can do. I mean, it's a very great asset of the Christian church that it, it does better when things are really bad. If you want to kill the church, you give it all the goods and goodies so that it, it's more concerned with how it looks and how, how many dollars worth of cosmetics it's put on its face or whatever, uh, rather than thinking properly about important things. This is the world we're in. Uh, the church has become a social club where how you present yourself is more important than the state of your soul. So that has to change. You want to make the church grow? Go after it and the church will grow. The church is actually growing in Iran at the moment. That's almost beyond belief. It's one of the most dangerous places in the world to be a Christian. People are getting converted. I mean, the guy who was in charge of the Anglican church in Baghdad, uh, I once saw him talking, I think he's dead now, he said at Easter he had baptized, I don't know, a dozen people or something like that. 
And he said, I knew that within the next year, half of them would be killed, and they knew that too. Can you imagine that, having people like that in church who care that much about what they have come to know in Christ when they realized they needed to be baptized, they were going to do it, come what may. They did, and half of them did die, probably all of them by now. And the church grows. It always has, and it always will. Uh, Tough times are never something for us to be worried about uh, because only those people with divine support come through it satisfactorily. These things are said to try us, and they certainly do, and they certainly make us recognize our dependence. In the chapter of the Bible that's been coming back to me most over the last little while has certainly been the parable of the vine. Jesus is the vine. His father is the vine dresser. We are supposed to be the fruit. And the way the fruit comes, as he says, is pruning, cutting back till real growth starts from the base, so to speak. And the pruning in our lives is the suffering that comes our way. So in talking about hope, I began by, by telling the audience about the kinds of children that I had spent my life trying to serve in one way or another. Children with severe malnutrition in the developing world, children with cystic fibrosis and uh, with various uh, metabolic disorders and and particularly quadriplegic cerebral palsy. Now, all of those children, the liberal elite who rule us, have decided that we don't need them and they don't really enjoy life, so we should not allow them to come in the first place. Because when you refuse to believe in God and in providence, you take the role yourself. So their intent is to destroy all those children before they're born, if possible. And we're going to do made on many of them. Uh, it's coming. It's inevitable. It's always the way it goes. The first act of the Nazi government in the 1930s was, was to make the killing of handicapped children legal. And they made some survey movies about what a patriotic thing it was to do. But it was the start of the whole killing machine. And, of course, the church survived, as it always does and always will. Uh, The people who went down are the people who played God when they shouldn't. So once you step step back and have some history, uh, you begin to be safer than you were before. It's when we lose our historical roots that we get into the deepest trouble. I mean, I sometimes get tired with what I'm doing. My next birthday is my 84th. And then I look at my bookshelf, and one of the books on the shelf that I've never finished, uh, I pull out and read a bit more. It's called The Nazi Doctors by Jay Lifton. I can't stop traveling and talking to primarily medical audiences until I know when I ask the question, have you read Jay Lifton, the answer will be yes. And the answer is not yes, it's no. Lifton was not even a Christian. He was left-wing uh, psychiatrist, but he was appalled by what happened to medicine in Germany. And after the war, he wanted to go and talk to the people who had run the concentration camps. He wanted to understand them if he could. Now, most people don't know that the SS 
had far more doctors in it than it should have done in terms of proportion in the population. Because the God complex easily comes into medicine if you're uh, that way inclined. And what they all said, of course, was, well, we just obeyed orders. But the orders they obeyed were so horrendous. How could you get to the point where the orders mattered that much that it would override the reality? Because if you were unfortunate enough to arrive at Auschwitz, shall we say, having been trucked across Europe in a cattle car without any facilities, demoralized, cold, unfed, squealing children, they probably stopped by this time just crying, and you got off the, the train and you were met on the, on the ground and very cursorily a doctor would look at you and say, enough muscle mass for work, go through the gates to the work area. And over the top it said, freedom through work. The freedom was going to be death anyway. But if you were a child or elderly or infirm, you went straight to the gas chambers. And that choice was made by a doctor who almost certainly at that time had taken the Hippocratic Oath when he was at medical school. And yet he had been brainwashed into this. So anybody who doesn't realize we're all vulnerable to being brainwashed to extents that are unbelievable. Uh, we wouldn't have believed them ourselves if we could go back uh, to our teenage years. He couldn't believe that their answer was, we just obeyed orders. Think about what COVID was like. If you didn't obey orders, you weren't treated as a rational human being. You were treated as some kind of criminal. That's exactly the same process. Now, we, if people wanted to make bad choices, a doctor would tell them, well, we think that's a bad choice and here are the reasons. But unless you were damaging others, uh, we, were, we would have no reason or basis to, to do otherwise. Now, they had to lie about the efficacy of the vaccine uh, because it wasn't tested. It hadn't gone through the normal testing. And although they say we save lives, you'll note that there's no breakdown of which lives they saved and which they didn't. They probably did save lives statistically of people who were already my sort of age who are only going to live another few years anyway. So the number of years saved... It's relatively small, but there were, there's an excess death rate amongst young males, and now we're seeing diseases that you didn't normally get till you were old now occurring in the young, in, in, in fact, 20-year-old males getting cancers of the gut that nobody's ever seen before in that age group. We've got a lot to learn, but it doesn't look like good news. And more, moreover, Bits of the DNA that they'd forgotten about have gotten into the DNA of people who were vaccinated and they will be passed on to their children because unlike mRNA, uh, DNA is almost indestructible. I mean, we can get it out of mammoths that have been frozen for tens of thousands of years. mRNA should only last seconds to minutes in the body, but they modified it so that it lasted longer. And they didn't clean it up well enough. And that varied from batch to batch. And fortunately, one obsessive compulsive had 
who'd been doing the vaccinations had kept all, all, the, all the bottles he'd used during his time as a vaccinator. He hadn't thrown them away. That was a, a treasure trove because you'd never get everything out of the bottle. There more than enough for you to find out what was there. And of course, by the grace of God, that treasure trove got into the hands of an honest scientist. And one of the things that came out quite quickly is that the risk of these complications was not the same for every batch. And the batches that were most dangerous are the ones that have been cleaned up the least well in terms of getting rid of bits of DNA. There was more DNA with the mRNA in the ones that were dangerous than the others. So it's, it's all slowly going to come out. But back to where I took this little digression, we were allowing a totalitarian approach to medicine. Uh, and Fauci clearly enjoyed being in the limelight and saying that he was the voice of science. What an incredibly arrogant thing to say. I mean, the first thing you know if you're a real scientist is you know a little bit more about some areas of science than any other. And if you've got any sense at all, you say, oh, my goodness, what does that mean about all the rest of it? I, I'm very, very, uh, what shall I say, hard to know how to describe this, but with my own work, which has had, in some cases, the ultimate proof in that it saved lives, I still have huge doubts about whether I got it all right, and I know that part of it I don't understand at all. Because that's a bit of science I studied for years. And what you learn is how incredibly complex the world is. You, you don't come away thinking, I know it all. You think, oh my goodness, how, how little of it all I know. That little can still be very valuable and useful, but no scientist can be as hubristic, real scientist, as Fauci, as Fauci was. The real horror for me is... Uh, uh, the guy did the Human Genome Project, Francis Collins, because he's a good guy, he's a Christian. But he was sucked into Fauci's world. And I'm sure I feel very sorry for him uh, because he must, he, he's a very thoughtful guy and he's a very kind guy and a nice guy. Uh, and he got sucked into something that's very difficult. Uh, I know in due course, or at least I hope I know, that he will, in due course, when he sorted it all out, laid out for everyone to see but it's we're, we're, we sit on a knife edge all the while and our own handiwork makes us more dangerous doesn't it this question of how a society gets out of hand and, and how it loses its way the first breakdown in all cultures that have died that died out is a breakdown in the con moral consensus when they no longer believe in the, have a common belief in the nature of good and evil. You see, the problem with the modern world, with all the movements we've had, and the ultimate disaster of multiculturalism, which everybody says, oh, what a lovely idea, without thinking about it at all. The only directions that God ever gave to human beings that are at all codified are, in fact, the Ten Commandments and what goes with them, the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, and they're all about the five, the, the ten divine intolerances. You can write the Ten Commandments as what God will not tolerate as behavior from you. And all he says about them, he doesn't explain them. He just says, 
if you will keep these rules, then you will flourish, you and your children. And the Jews have not done it perfectly by any means, but they do hold on to a degree and they have an incredible cultural history. We're looking at what's happening in Israel at the moment. Uh, Tiny Israel is technologically ahead of the rest of the world and it's unstoppable. The Muslim world controls most of the wealth in the world. They're the wealthiest people there, but they won't even help. They wouldn't suggest to the people of Hamas that they could come to the rest of the Arab or Muslim world. They wouldn't suggest that to the Afghans. They don't take them to Qatar, which is loaded with money, or wherever else. They send them to Europe to destabilize us. None of them have offered to take any refugees from Gaza. And you look at the map, this tiny little sliver of land surrounded by huge areas of underpopulated land, all controlled by Muslims. So the Jewish history is one of the most astonishing ones. There's a famous quote of um, Frederick the Great saying to his religious leader at the time, his, his chaplain, if you like, why should I believe? And the chaplain says, my Lord, the Jews, my Lord, the Jews. The history of the Jews is a miracle. Why can't we call it that? Of course, if we say it's a miracle, we've got to say, well, who did the miracle? It's a cultural miracle dependent upon a spiritual miracle. And we are going backwards, aren't we? You in the United States are really the, so on, the prime example. I mean, when the United States began in the 18th century, there was no railways, there were no cars. People set off with with horse and cart and went west. I just go to the end of my farm where I've got 50 uh, acres of virgin uh, woodland. To get a cart through that would have taken a long while. To think of doing thousands of miles through stuff like that, that was a determination beyond belief. I look at my farmhouse and got wonderful old boards of a foot wide, that were undoubtedly cut on the farm. Now, aged in all sorts of beautiful colours, you needed six sons to run a hundred acres, so to speak, six working guys. Uh, You needed the women as well to keep the guys serviced and to do the things that they did better than we did. They were amazing people. And they stopped off at various places and set up little communities, and the center of that community was the church. So, in fact, America was founded by Protestant churches. Uh, Your can-do approach to life comes from that. When a disaster happens in rural America, everybody gets together to sort it out. They don't wait for the government to arrive. That only happens in cities. It happens in Europe. They've lost that sense, okay, we can fix this. And if there was an argument in a bar at the end of the day when somebody said, well, the Bible says, that would have been the end of the argument. Now, the whole objective of the uh, university is to destroy that argument, even though the Bible is the book that made the Western world possible. 
And it's good to see there are people, one of your ambassadors to Israel, I think, a Jewish guy who's an atheist, he says, we need the, the Bible back. Something, lots of these people are saying, without a religious sort of text that is respected, you cannot hold a culture together. The Muslims are right about the way they put the Quran on a pedestal, and you can't do anything against the Quran. Of course, now the Quran is falling apart because we found so many documents with bits of the Quran in them before Arabic, as we know it, uh, was even invented. There were there are what are known as dark passages in the Quran. They don't make sense to anyone. And a, a German scholar worked out, oh my goodness. The reason they don't make sense is we're trying to understand them in Arabic, and actually they're from previous languages. And once he put them into the, reread those texts, which were before they had any of those little dots and dashes and squiggles on, they made sense. That's undermining the book itself. So the Muslim world is upset and is going to be more upset. They're going through the same process we in the Christian world went through in the 19th century when German academics started uh, denigrating the Bible in all sorts of ways uh, with some benefit, uh, but a lot of destruction. And made, it caused a lot of people to say, well, he, it's not really true. Now we've come out the other side of that uh, so that the people, particularly in Europe, who are Christian, are serious Christians, because it, it didn't become a social club in Europe in the same way that it has in America. So once we become serious scholars, we get more enamored of the scriptures, not less, as we began, begin to realize how incredible they are. And of course, the central character in the whole of it, Jesus. To me, every time I read and I, the Gospels, which I read continuously, I say, why can't we teach like that? I enjoy te teasing kids I've taught years later, saying, How, tell me something I taught you. And I know they won't be able to. It'll be very little. It won't be what I taught them. It would be what I modeled. Yeah, you had a, a profound influence, but it wasn't the didactic stuff that we now make central to everything we do uh, because the teachers are not only wrong, they're lazy. So instead of marking essays that were written under controlled circumstances, which is hard work, they have them checking little boxes which can be marked by computers and are essentially meaningless at the end of the day. Yet you could take any bunch of Christians who are even modestly interested in their faith and sit them down and say, now write a list of the parables and of the miracles that Jesus did. And if there, if there were four or five around the table, they'd get 99% of those stories and miracles. Now, no teacher comes anywhere close to that. Christ never wrote anything down for us except in the sand, so that it wasn't for, for us. Yet his stories and his miracles have created Europe as they were processed by the people that God created over time. And we remember everything we can find in the scriptures about him. That's teaching on a scale that we don't have anyone else who can come close. I mean, the great teachers like, uh, like Socrates, we remember his dialogues because, again, they have some similar characteristics to that of what Jesus did.
So in that process, hope came alive. And it's been continuously with us ever since. Uh, and that's vitally important. How can I, how can I put it down? Examples always help. Uh, I remember a little girl. She had cerebral palsy. Uh, she couldn't talk, but she could just about move around with the help of her walker. And her mum told me one day, she said, this was when interest rates went up till near, to near 20% at one point in Canada in the, in the 80s. And that meant many family businesses with loans were in deep trouble. They were going back, they were going broke. Uh, and this was a little later, and she, 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 we got to talking about that. I can't remember how it came about. But then she said, you know, if it hadn't been for her, the little girl, our family would have fallen apart because when the money got tight, my husband and I would get into arguments and they'd get out of control. And every time that happened, she would struggle to her feet and insert herself between the two of them. And she would not move until they had kissed and made up. And they, she, said, she saved our family. The... The disabled, so-called, are there for a reason. But it cannot be explained now. This is where hope comes in. We live with the hope that Jesus tells us, you do not understand everything now, but one day you will. Don't take revenge. Revenge is mine. Justice will be done, and you will be satisfied. You cannot deal with the kinds of children I dealt with if you don't have that ultimate hope that there is meaning in this. That hope is real. Uh, and you see it played out in various ways as you uh, go through your life. Uh, and every now and again, you get little encouragements. Uh, I'm thinking now of a, a young man who's... Well, he's got a child now, but he's going through the University of Cape Town's medical system, and he's incredibly smart. Uh, and I met him just as he'd, he was in his residency, and he came to a conference to help with, for medical students in South Africa. And after the con uh, session, we were talking, and suddenly he quoted a whole page of Shakespeare to me. Uh, then I explored further and found that his father was a Presbyterian minister way up on the Zimbabwean border. And they, they read serious things together. And uh, I introduced him to first things. Years later, I met his parents and his father. Uh, and that had made a huge impact on both Zani and on his father. This is a little example of a tiny seed that was dropped almost by accident. And yet, it had ramifications that are good. Uh, I think heaven will be full of the patterns that God was weaving and we were not seeing at the time, and we'll see them then. And even the little glimpses we have now are enough to bring tears to your, to your eyes. I mean, the one thing that really moves me deeply every time I see it is grace when for no reason at all, out of nowhere, someone sees the world in a different way and their life is turned around. 
that is astonishing. Uh, we have no idea how it's done. Those people who say, here's how you preach the gospel, you tick the, each of the boxes and you're a Christian. Oh, no, that is nowhere near the reality. The reality is miles different from that, <laughs> much more beautiful, stunning. God comes in in the most mysterious ways and changes us. That's why you could say we are a people whose hope is not based here but based there, for we seek a kingdom whose builder and maker is God. That's a hope once firmly ingrained in you. It's real. Both my parents were in that category, and both their uh, funeral services, the instructions were clear. This is not to be a sad time. It was homecoming. It was well done, good and faithful servant. Uh, I just, at the reception afterwards, I just listened to the stories from people who were there, uh, what they had accomplished in their lives. Little things that grew into bigger things. That's the way the Western world happened. The Jews and the Christians made the modern world. Nobody else. Uh, now, the people who, who are getting angry at the moment, let's face it, we've all been slaves at some point or another. Every culture has done it. Uh, we were enslaved by the Romans, who were far more brutal than the British, which is not to say that what the British did was right. It wasn't. But nobody understood that for a long while, because every culture has practiced slavery. Uh, even in America, there were blacks who had black slaves, freed blacks who then got slaves themselves. That happened. That's human nature. Only, the only culture in the world that began to, to realize that it was wrong even though Paul had said and written the death knell of slavery when he said, in Christ there's neither male nor female, bond nor free, that was the end of slavery, but it was going to take a long while to happen. But the first time it happened, most people have no idea of this, and Wikipedia won't take you there, and Google won't take you there. But if you look up Anselm Conference, 12th century, you'll find that Anselm, at the end of his life, when the church still had real power, persuaded all his bishops that they should say, in the Church of England in the 12th century, we will not accept slavery. That's a long while ago. And the Brits paid to get rid of slavery on the seas. Something, some considerable percentage of the Navy's budget for a long time, uh, almost 100 years, was spent on getting rid of slave ships. And that bill was not paid off until the last few years. That's how long the debt that was built up to run that process took to pay off. But there was almost an evangelical, well, it was evangelical, driven by evangelicals, desire by many people in England to get rid of slavery. It was a gift from God that they wanted to do that. But we should tell the truth about the story. There are more black-on-black -black slaves in Africa today than ever crossed the Atlantic. And the far bigger slave trade went east to the Muslims, but they castrated every male to make sure they didn't have a problem of people from outside their culture on a permanent basis. Well, so you just don't know enough about. So the hope of glory is not wrong, it's there. I mean, the Lord's Prayer, which I hope everyone listening to me says every day, is very interesting. 
the first bit is all about God. He wants us to have a, a sense of who he is and what he is because that will keep us sane. And he says, you, you can ask every day for your food. And immediately after he said, and ask for the gift of repentance. The two things we really need every day is food and to forgive. And then at the end, I mean, it should end in a crescendo. The power and the glory and the kingdom all belong to God. Thank you guys all for listening. We hope you guys enjoyed this podcast. Be sure to share it with your friends if you found it helpful. And we'll see you guys next week. Mm-hmm.